Thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this chapter in Romans that we've studied this week, Lord. I just thank you so much for giving Michelle the strength to complete this lecture. And Lord, please help us to see clearly what you have for each and every one of us today. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Again, I am reading Michelle's lecture. This is her lecture. I am just reading it for her. We have all had the difficult experience of being misunderstood due to a mistake we have done. Like the fellow who had just finished laying carpet at someone's home, he was so glad to be finished a bit early. Then he noticed a little lump in the corner. He didn't want to rip up the carpet. Then he noticed his cigarette package was missing. He thought, that's what that lump is. So he hit it with a hammer and smashed it down nice and flat so that the carpet was smooth and flat. Satisfied, he walked out, got in his truck, and noticed his cigarettes were on the dashboard. Then he heard the woman of the house holler out the door, have you seen my parakeet? <laughs> As Paul was writing this letter, knowing there would be Jewish believers reading it, he did not want to be misunderstood. To the Jewish person of the first century, the law of God was a priceless treasure. And yet the law of God had wrongly become what was thought to be the means of salvation. We have seen Paul address this error in chapter 3, verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What was so concerning to the Jewish people hearing this was that they believed the law is what produced holy living. The thinking was, if there is no law, then people are just going to live a lawless life. So in chapter 7, Paul clarifies what he meant by saying that believers are not under the law, answering the charge that the law is what refrains a person from sinning. The word law is used 23 times in this chapter. Obviously, the theme is the believer's relationship with the law of Moses. You may think this isn't really relevant to you, but in truth, it is critical to understand because if you don't, you may fall into the error of legalism yourself. This is a belief that we can become holy by obeying certain laws and regulations, making spirituality a list of do's and don'ts. The other extreme is called libertine that rejects the law, wants nothing to do with it, and looks at the Christian life with an attitude of doing whatever you want because you are no longer under the law. So as we approach this challenging chapter, realize that Paul is trying to explain the proper relationship a believer has with the law. In verses 1 through 6, we see the relationship a believer has a believer, of a believer to the law. In verse 1, specifically, we see the law only impacts the living. Whether it is the law of Moses or the law of the Roman government, the law only has jurisdiction over a person who is alive. So if a murderer is sentenced to life or the electric chair, but they die without experiencing their sentence, it doesn't matter because they are dead already. The law can only have authority with the living. This principle is easy enough to understand. So now Paul gives an illustration in verses 2 and 3. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. 
God's law says when a man and woman marry, they are united for life. They are bound to one another by the law. Verse 2, but if he dies, she is freed from her relationship with her husband. The death of a spouse releases the living person from that marriage. Death means she is free to remarry another. In verse 3, Paul says, so then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So if a married woman leaves her living husband to marry another, she's a lawbreaker. The point of this passage is not to give an exhaustive message on divorce and remarriage. That is dealt with in Matthew 5 and 19 and 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Rather, Paul is simply using marriage to illustrate the point that a wife is legally bound to a husband as long as he lives. But when her husband dies, she is legally free to marry someone else. His point is to make clear that death breaks the marriage relationship and sets the wife free. Having given this illustration, now Paul is ready to show that this principle applies to us and our relationship with the law of Moses. In verse 4, we see how the illustration applies to believers. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. In other words, just as death ends a marriage, so death has ended our relationship with the law. We have seen the truth that when we come to Christ and trust him to be our savior from sin, at that very moment, unbeknown to us, we died. It is something that has already taken place in the past. We were made to die, could be translated, were put to death. This is what we saw in chapter 6, verse 3. So just as a woman is freed from the law by the death of her husband, so believers are free from the law by our death in Christ, as stated in Galatians 2, verses 19 and 20. The law demands a penalty, for the wages of sin is death. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid that penalty, and we died with him by the divine act of God in response to faith in his Son. Since Christ died, the law cannot touch him or us. We died to the law, and the law only has authority over living people. The penalty for breaking God's law is death, but our crimes of law-breaking have already been paid for as believers. If a criminal was put to death, but after being killed came back to life, the law could not punish him again. He would be a free man. This is how it is for a believer in Christ. The law of God can never condemn us again. The penalty for breaking the law has been paid. It has no more demands that it can make on us. We used to be married to the law, just as a wife was under authority of her husband. So we were under the authority of the law. We were bound to it, but no longer. We died, so we are free to be married to someone else. Verse 4, the second part, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from death, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Just as physical marriage can produce the fruit of children, so in the spiritual realm, the union of a believer with Christ produces spiritual fruit called holiness. 
Where there is genuine salvation and union with Christ, there will be fruit that glorifies God. And we see that in John chapter 15 and Galatians chapter 5. Verses 5 and 6, we see the explanation of the illustration that was given. In verse 5, Paul describes what we were like before being saved. We were in the flesh, that unredeemed human condition we are all born into. Well, in that state where we were dominated by the flesh with all of its sinful passions, the law was at work and our body could, not, could only produce fruit for death. In our rebellious, sinful nature, when we are told not to do something, that's what we want to do, and vice versa. Our sinful passions are intensified by the law. As unbelievers, we really want to do what it says not to do, and the result is fruit that leads to death. That is how we used to be when under the law. But now that we are married to Christ, we are delivered from the condemnation of the law, no longer under its reign. Of course, those who would object to what Paul is saying would think that people will live however they want without being under the law, but quite the contrary. Those no longer under the law now desire to serve and obey because they have a changed heart with proper motives. A believer obeys God's word in newness of spirit who works within us, so we desire to serve and obey God's law. It is no longer about outward rituals or following a religious code outwardly, appearing pious to others. A believer has a new nature and now obeys out of love for God. We have been set free from trying to earn salvation by keeping an outward legal code. Now, as a believer, we keep the moral law out of love for our Savior. In verses 7 through 13, we see the purpose of the law. In verse 7, the law reveals our sin. I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law doesn't create sin, it just shows us the sin that is already in our hearts. We learned from the first chapter of this book that you don't have to have knowledge of the law of Moses to know that you are a sinner. There is that law within our hearts that we all break. Paul is trying to help us understand the true character of sin. So many think they can check off a list of things they haven't done and be okay with God. As a religious Pharisee, Paul thought he was okay with God. He fulfilled the external reg regulations. But the law revealed to him the truth about his sin. The command not to covet is a focus on the heart. It is an inward attitude. It is wanting something, craving something that is not to be yours. This law revealed to Paul that his internal desires and thoughts were sin. He wouldn't have known how sinful this was without the law telling him it was wrong to covet. This is the biggest obstacle for the religious person who does not see a need for salvation. They fail to see the real nature of sin. They see themselves as good in behavior because they have never murdered, robbed banks, etc. This is how Paul saw himself before his conversion. He thought he was blameless because of his outward behavior. But the law revealed the true nature of his sin. 
It convicted him of being a sinner before a holy God. The law is not sinful. Anything that reveals a person's sin lifts up God's holiness. The law shows us our sin. In verse 8, we see how the law arouses sin. Not only does the law show us our sin, but when we realize the true nature of sin, we actually sin more because more instead of less. The truth is, we are rebellious, and that rebellion rises up to oppose a law that forbids a particular sin. The point he is making is that once we know something is forbidden to do, we want to do it. The speed limit is 55, but we'll do 60 because that's a stupid law that slows us down. You tell a child they're forbidden to watch something, or even something as simple as telling them not to turn around in their seats, and that is exactly what they want to do. In reality, the law teaches us the depths of our sinfulness and depravity. And with what results? Verse 8 through 13, the law kills us. In this section, Paul tells us he wasn't aware of sin in his heart until the law got a grip on his heart. Sin is never dead in us. It's always alive. But sometimes it is not as active. The law of God takes hold of you, and the light comes on that you are a depraved, vile sinner, and it does something inside. It spiritually slays you. He is speaking of the fact that he was alive before he understood the law in the sense that he thought everything was fine with him. He was satisfied and confident in how good he was, proud of his religious achievements. But then something happened. In verse 9, Paul says, But when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. He's not speaking of physical death, and he is born spiritually dead already. Rather, he saw himself condemned, guilty before a holy God. Suddenly, he saw he was weak and hopeless. The law slays us. It brings us to the place where we see ourselves for the lost, guilty sinners we truly are, unable to please God no matter how hard we try. In this excruciating moment of understanding where we are crushed and broken before God, all self-reliance is destroyed. The law destroys that confidence when we really understand how we have broken it. And our only hope is in Christ. He alone kept it perfectly before he ever died to pay our penalty for breaking the laws of Almighty God. Verse 10, the law of God was given to help Paul live a life of holiness. Thou shalt not covet is a good law. If you obey it, you avoid a lot of heartaches. But Paul discovered he couldn't keep it, so he found himself in misery. Verse 11, for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, came, deceived me, and through it killed me. Paul was deceived into thinking that he could actually keep the law and be happy. Sin leads you to think you can get into heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments, but that is a lie. The law shows us our sin. It arouses our sinful desires. It kills us as sinners. So can it be bad? Verse 12. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I think we would agree that the command to not murder is good and right. 
It is the breaking of this command that is evil. And so it is with all of God's laws. I remind you of the words of the psalmist in chapter 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. More desirable than gold, sweeter than honey. By them thy servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. This is the truth about God's law. Paul then summarizes what he has been saying in verse 13. What was the cause of death for Paul? It was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. So it is not the law that killed him, but his sin. God has allowed sin to use the law of God to bring death. Sin can even take a holy thing like the law to bring about death. What brings about our condemnation is sin. The law is not to blame for our condemnation and being deserving of death. A murderer can be angry with the law that forbids murder and try to blame the law for being in prison, but he has no one to blame but himself. God gave his law to lead us to Christ. It shows us our sin. It stirs up that rebellious heart we all have. It kills us. The question really for each of us today is, has the reality of your sinful state ever slain you? Have you seen the seriousness of your sin problem? Don't compare yourself to the wicked people in our world. Rather, see how holy God truly is and how far short you fall of ever being able to be right with him by your own efforts. You must put your faith in Christ alone and his work on the cross. Otherwise, you will be another victim of the deceitfulness of sin and its lies. Verses 14 through 25, we see the believer's battle with sin. I don't have time to go through all the arguments in regards to this being Paul as an unbeliever or an immature believer or a spiritual believer. The text itself gives us evidence. Paul says he knows that nothing good dwells in me. Only a believer understands that. We have just seen that Paul had died when he saw his sin. But now he speaks of the struggle with sin and fighting back as a believer. When a person has a clear view of God's holy law and their own sin, they are broken. If you feel this way, it is because you have grown spiritually. You would never see yourself as having arrived spiritually. The greater you have a sense of your sin, the more you see yourself as falling short of being like Christ. The more you see of Christ and understand his holiness, the more you see your sin. In other words, the closer you grow to Jesus, the more you see how much further you have to go to be like him. As believers, the law no longer condemns us, but the law still continues to do a good thing in our lives by showing us our sin. The point of Paul sharing his struggle with sin is to lift up the law of God as something good, spiritual, and wonderful. It gives us sensitivity to our sin and causes us to long to live up to God's holy standards. We should be encouraged to see this godly man, Paul, who wants to do what is right, 
yet he struggles with sin. I know I can relate to this, his frustration in this section. It's mine too, and I'm sure the same is true for many of you. In verse 14 through 23, we see the conflict with sin. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Again, the problem is sin, not the law. The law is from God, divine in its origin, and reflecting the one who gave it. We who are of flesh are unspiritual. The flesh is that part of us that hasn't been redeemed yet. It is our humanness that is still earthbound. Paul doesn't say that he is in the flesh or that he is dominated and controlled by the flesh. He just says that as God's law is spiritual and heavenly, he is imperfect and sinful and earthly. As blood-bought forgiven believers in Christ, we still have the capacity to sin because we have this body that sin uses to express itself. We know from our study of chapter 6 that we have a new nature and we are no longer compelled to sin. As followers of Christ, we are free to obey Christ. Here in Romans chapter 7, Paul is looking at himself not as one who purposely chooses sin for a master, but one who has a continual struggle with his sinful flesh. Paul is speaking of a bondage of still being a sinner, even though we long not to sin. It's the bondage where the war is raging on to not sin. As long as we are in this human body, we are in a war to the sin principle that wants to operate through our, our flesh. As long as we live in this human flesh, we will struggle with sin. He states in verse 15 that every believer has, what every believer has experienced. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Paul is not saying he never obeys God's laws. He is not saying that he never does anything right. Rather, he is lamenting the fact that he can't do everything right. His struggle is that he doesn't obey all of the law, even though he wants to. It's not that he doesn't understand because he's ignorant of why he struggles with sin. Rather, he means that he does not approve of it or love it. Every true believer knows this by experience. You got up early, spent time in the word and prayer, asked the Lord to help you be kind and patient and obedient. The first person you see after devotions says or does something and immediately you're angry and say something simple. And then you're annoyed with yourself that you have done the same wrong response again for the 100,000th time or leaving home after meaningful Bible study only to find yourself having hateful thoughts towards drivers you don't even know. <laughs> I can relate. The more godly you are, the more broken you will be over your sin. The person inclined to have to tell you how spiritual they are just revealed the opposite. People who are spiritual understand how unspiritual they really are. As you grow in your understanding of God's truth, you see sin that you never knew was there. We are reading about the great apostle Paul here. Most of us think of him to be the most spiritual man that has lived. Yet how Paul saw himself was that of a wretched character, chief of sinners. Is this how you see yourself? 
If not, it's because your lack of understanding of God's holiness. If you hate your sin, then you are agreeing that God's law is good. Before trusting in Christ to save you, you were totally dominated by sin. But as a believer confined to this earthbound body, there will always be a battle and struggle over sin. This indicates you are a believer. We will never fully we will never be fully delivered from this Romans 7 experience until Christ takes us to heaven. Paul sums up his situation in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus our Lord. He will set me free from the body of this death. There is victory over sin. We are not always defeated by sin, but we will continue to be in a struggle with sin. Verse 17 gives the key to this whole passage. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Paul is not refusing to take responsibility for his own sin. He is not saying, my old nature sins and I just can't do anything to keep from sinning and God doesn't hold me responsible. In verse 14, Paul said, I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. Paul could not be all that he wanted to be because there was sin in his life. Now he gets more specific as he says, it's not my new nature, the new man that is sinning, but rather it is sin that continues to live in me. This believer is in turmoil because he loves his Lord and he wants to please him. He says, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me because he is changed by Christ. For the unbeliever, they can't say no longer in their battle with sin. They don't even have a battle, except that they despise the consequences. Here's the truth to grasp. If you are a true believer in Jesus, then you know that you are not all that God wants you to be. But you are not what you used to be. The old you with the sin nature from Adam did whatever you wanted to do. But since coming to Christ, even though you struggle with sin, the real you, that inner man, truly longs to please God and obey his word. Paul clarifies for us in verse 18 that the battle with sin lies in the flesh. That is our body, mind, thoughts, feelings that still exists in our fallen human body that is decaying. That is the part of us that won't go to heaven. According to to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 15 to 30, 50 to 30, uh, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 53, there has to be a change before we are allowed into heaven. And that change will happen either at death or the rapture. But now we fight our flesh. He describes it again in verses 19 and 20. Paul is sad that he doesn't always do all of the good he desires to do. He repeats his conflict within again. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Literally in the Greek it reads, evil lies close at hand. When you want to do the will of God, evil is always there to battle you on your motives, your attitudes, and your actions. You know this from experience. You serve someone in some way, and as you think about what you just did, evil immediately enters your thinking to make you, your kind deed into sin. You know, thoughts like, I wish others could see all that I do for people. 
or it is pretty amazing that I took the time to offer this service when there is so much going on in my busy life. Wow, I really am a spiritual person. Verses 22 and 23, the proof of this conflict is that Paul says, I wish to do good and I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. God's word is a delight to the believer. The conflict is because of our humanness, our flesh, which we live in with a new nature. The new nature longs to obey the law of God, but there is another law working in the flesh. And these two laws are at war. Sometimes the law of sin wins. Paul speaks of the law of his mind, meaning the new man, that redeemed inner man, that new divine nature that causes believers to obey the law of God. But the law of sin, or that principle to do evil, is at war against the principle to do good, stopping Paul from living in perfect obedience 100% of the time. This passage is not really given so we all know about Paul's struggle and personal testimony. Rather, it is to illustrate the point that the law only reveals sin. It never makes us holy. It can never deliver us from the tyranny of sin. It shows us that being delivered from sin doesn't lie within us. So Paul cries out in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Paul wants total deliverance from a body that has the capacity to sin. He is weary of the battle. He wants to be rescued from the body of death, his unredeemed body, the part that is still old, that hasn't been made new by Christ. Paul speaks of himself like one bound to a corpse. Time and time again, I have heard Johnny Erickson Tata testify that her greatest longing in being with Jesus is to finally be set free from the battle with sin. In her mind, that comes before the freedom from having been a quadriplegic most of her life. What is the answer to Paul's cry to be set free? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we die or he returns, then we will be clothed with a new glorified body. Then the battle will be finally over. One day we will have a new body to go along with our new nature. But for now, the battle rages on as long as we have breath. Don't be discouraged. Keep fighting the good fight, ladies. The fact that you recognize your sin in, light, in your life is a recognition of the truth that God is holy. The moment we are with him, we will finally be at rest because a new body means no more struggle with sinful flesh. I close with a quote by John Newton. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truths in your word. Lord, please help each of us as we leave here today to keep fighting the good fight. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus and to be encouraged because we know that there will be a day when the battle will end and we will be with you forever. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.